Is depression a chemical imbalance? What do we know about depression, its causes, and its treatment? Yuan Hari suffered from depression since he was a child and started taking antidepressants when he was a teenager. He was told that his problems were caused by a chemical imbalance in his brain. As an adult trained in the social sciences, he began to investigate whether this was true. And he learned that almost everything we've been told about depression and anxiety is wrong. Everywhere I went, from Berlin to Buenos Aires, from Sydney to Sao Paulo to San Francisco, I could see the most successful approaches to reducing depression and anxiety were ones that dealt with the reasons why people are so depressed in the first place. Yohan Hari is the author of Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions. It's time for Progressive Spirit. Be right back. You're listening to the podcast version of Progressive Spirit. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Podomatic, TuneIn, or whatever podcast app you use to listen and give Progressive Spirit five stars, won't you? Contact me through ProgressiveSpirit.net with your thoughts and ideas about the show, and be sure to share this podcast on your social media. Follow on Facebook and Twitter. The website, again, is ProgressiveSpirit.net. Pacifica Radio Network, PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit. ProgressiveSpirit.net, I'm John Schuck. Yuan Hari suffered from depression since he was a child, and he took antidepressants as a teenager because he was told that depression is the result of a chemical imbalance in the brain. He went on a quest to see if this is really the case. In his book, Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions, he discusses that journey. He interviewed many social scientists who are uncovering evidence that depression and anxiety are largely caused by key problems with the way we live today, not brain chemistry. You know, I'll give you an example. There's a study that asked Americans, how many close friends do you have who you can call on in a crisis? And when they started doing it years ago, the most common answer was five. Today, the most common answer is none, right? A society of profoundly lonely, isolated people told that life is about money and status, you know, uh, who, who think that life is about screaming at each other through screens is going to be a society with a depression and anxiety crisis for a really good reason. And it's not because just because something went wrong inside their skulls, right? And if we tell people a story that it's just biological, what that does is it cuts us off from understanding the real causes of these problems in our own individual lives and in the wider society. And that is a disaster. Yuan Hari is a New York Times bestselling author. His book, Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs, has been translated into 15 languages and is currently being adapted into a major Hollywood film and into a nonfiction documentary series. He's one of the most viewed TED Talkers of all time. His talk, Everything You Think You Know About Addiction, is wrong. He has written over the past seven years for some of the world's leading newspapers and magazines, including the New York Times, the L.A. Times, The Guardian, The Spectator, The Millbourne Age, and Politico. He's also appeared on leading television shows, including HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher. He was twice named National Newspaper Journalist of the Year by Amnesty International. And he's also been named Cultural Commentator of the Year and Environmental Commentator of the Year at the Comment Awards. He's with me via Skype from London. Welcome, Johan, to Progressive Spirit. Hey, John. It's really good to be with you. Really glad having you here. I, I very much appreciated your book, and we're going to uh, talk about it now. Tell me, just give an overview here. Uh, wh why this book and why now? There were these two mysteries that were really haunting me. The first was, I'm 39 years old. Every year that I've been alive, depression and anxiety have increased in the United States and in Britain. And I wanted to understand why. And the reason I want to understand why was because of the second mystery to me, which is very personal. When I was a teenager, I had gone to my doctor and I'd explained that I had this 
feeling like pain was kind of leaking out of me and I couldn't control it or regulate it. I felt very ashamed about it. And my doctor told me a story about why I felt this way that was totally biological. He said, we know why people feel like this. Um, there's this chemical called serotonin in people's brains. Some people, it makes them feel good. Some people are naturally lacking it. You're clearly one of them. We'll give you these drugs and you'll feel better. And I started taking chemical antidepressants. I felt an immediate and really huge boost. For a couple of months, I felt great. And then this feeling of pain started to bleed back through. I went back to my doctor. Um, he gave me a higher dose. Um, Again, I felt better. Again, the feeling of pain started to bleed back through. And this kind of continued until for 13 years, I was taking the maximum possible dose, at the end of which I still felt terrible. And I thought, well, there must be something going on here, right? What, what's happening? It didn't, it seemed to me, although I was afraid to acknowledge it to myself, it couldn't just be that it's a chemical imbalance, because why would it be rising so much if, if that was the only problem here? So I ended up going on a big, long journey. I went over 40,000 miles and interviewed the leading experts in the world about what causes depression and anxiety and what solves them. And I went to places that just have very different perspectives on this, from an Amish village in Indiana, uh, because the Amish have very low levels of depression, to a city in Brazil that banned advertising to see if that would make people feel better, to a lab at one of the most prestigious universities in the United States where they're giving people psychedelic drugs to trigger spiritual experiences to see if that would make them feel better. And I learned so many things. But one is, I realized when I was a teenager, until I went to my doctor, I thought that my depression was all in my head, meaning, you know, I was just weak. I needed to man up, you know, all the kind of cliches. And then for the next 13 years, I thought it was all in my head, meaning, you know, I was it was a chemical imbalance in my brain. Right. Actually, the main thing I learned is there are real biological causes that make depression worse, like your genes. I write about them very clearly in Lost Connections. But overwhelmingly, the causes of depression and anxiety are not in our heads. They're in the way we live. That uh, In the book, I write about nine key causes of depression and anxiety for which there's scientific evidence. Two of them are biological, but seven are factors in the way we live. And once you understand that, it opens up a very different way of uh, uh, thinking about the solutions. So let's go talk about, first of all, uh, these SSRIs, because that's been the solution du jour, right? They are the fancy name, the Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors, and we pass those out in the United States, in the UK, and perhaps elsewhere, like candy. Uh, 20 million uh, Americans uh, are on these. They're, they're anything from, what, Paxil to Zoloft to Prozac, uh, those things that um, this idea that it's a chemical thing, and that is a good story. When the story that we have heard that you you mentioned earlier, that uh, it's because I'm depressed because um, I'm just you know not capable. I need to get up out, you know, pull myself up and do all that kind of stuff that doesn't work. So a chemical answer to my story is helpful, right? But on the other end, uh, it isn't true either in in many respects. Uh, would you say that these SSRIs are little more than um, what placebos? We need to have a nuanced conversation about chemical antidepressants because um, I think too often the, the conversation gets hijacked into a, are you for or against them, which I think is too simplistic a way of thinking about what's happening here. One of the ways we know the effectiveness of chemical antidepressants, this can be measured. Depression is measured by something called the Hamilton scale. So I always felt sorry for whoever Hamilton was that we only remember him by how miserable we all are. But the it goes the Hamilton scale goes from one where you would be dancing around in joy to 51 where you would be acutely suicidal. And to give people a sense of what movement on the Hamilton scale looks like, if you improve your sleep patterns, you will get a, a boost of six points on the Hamilton scale. And if your sleep patterns radically deteriorate, like when you have a baby, you'll go six points the other way. According to the leading expert at Harvard Medical School, on average, chemical antidepressants move you 1.8 points on the Hamilton scale. So it's important to say a few things. Firstly, that's an average. So initially, I got more than that. Over time, I got a lot less than that. Also important to say 1.8 points is not nothing, right? You can understand why if you were you know, acutely suicidal, for example, 1.8 points might be the thing that saves your life by taking you off the bridge. That is relief worth having. Now, alongside right. that benefit, people get, in many cases, not all, very powerful side effects. I put on a huge amount of weight, like 75% of men who take these drugs that affected my sexual functioning. Um, so I had very powerful side effects. Some people do not have such powerful side effects. Um, 
so you can see there that's a nuanced picture about chemical it's not just thumbs up thumbs down it's there's real benefit it's quite small for most people it's alongside a lot of side effects so you can see how that's not an argument against chemical antidepressants it's an argument for a more realistic conversation about them but the thing that most struck me about 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 this is is um i went and interviewed this south african psychiatrist called derek summerfield who's a great guy and derek happened to be in cambodia when chemical antidepressants were first introduced in that country it was 2001 he wasn't there to study this it was just by coincidence he was there at that time and the Cambodian doctors didn't know what these drugs were. So they were like, what are they? And Derek explained and they said to him, oh, we don't need antidepressants. We've already got antidepressants. And he said, what do you mean? He thought they were going to talk about some kind of chemical, you know, kind of it's a herbal remedy or something. Right. Instead, they told him a story. There was a farmer in their community who one day had stood on a landmine left over by the war with the United States and had his leg blown off. And they had um, given him an artificial leg. And he went back to work in the rice fields. But apparently it's super painful to work underwater where you've got an artificial leg. Um, and I'm imagining it was really traumatic because he's been blown up in this field. The guy started to cry all day, didn't want to get out of bed, classic depression. They said to Derek, we gave him an antidepressant. Derek said, what was it? They explained that they went and sat with him. They listened to him. They realized that his pain made sense. They figured if they bought him a cow... He could become a dairy farmer. Um, he, he, you know, he wouldn't be in this situation that was making him so depressed. They bought him a cow. Within a couple of weeks, his depression went away. He was fine. They said to Derek, so that cow, that was an antidepressant. That's what you mean, right? Now, if you've been raised to think about depression the way we have, that it's just a chemical imbalance in your brain, that sounds like a bad joke, right? I went to my doctor for an antidepressant. He gave me a cow. But what those Cambodian doctors knew intuitively is what the World Health Organization, the leading medical body in the world, has been trying to tell us for years. If you're depressed, if you're anxious, you're not a machine with broken parts. You're a human being with unmet needs. And you need support and help to get those needs met. Everyone listening to this show knows that you have natural physical needs, right? You need to you need to have food. You need to have water. You need to have clean air. You need to have shelter. If I took those things away from you, you would be in real trouble real fast. There's equally strong evidence that human beings have natural psychological needs. You need to feel you belong. You need to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You need to feel that people see you and value you. You need to feel you've got a future that makes sense. Now, our culture is good at lots of things. I'm glad to be alive today. But we are getting less and less good at meeting these deep underlying psychological needs that human beings have, which is one of the key reasons why we have this depression and anxiety crisis. And I wanted to figure out, and a big part of my book, Lost Connections, is about, well, what's the cow for our problem, right? It, 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 we need to expand our idea of what an antidepressant is. An antidepressant should be regarded as anything that reduces people's depression. Now, of course, chemical antidepressants should be one of the things on the menu, but we need a radically expanded menu of options. Think about that, and I learned about, I write about seven of them in the book. Yeah, one of them, um, if you don't mind, is to talk about uh, meaningful work. Uh, people go to work, and uh, you, you use the example, one point, he, the person uh, shakes paint cans and that's it day after day after day um but you also talked about uh, a work um st uh, structure in which it's more democratic and and that gives people a sense of of ownership and control over the work and and uh that really creates a, a huge difference in terms of depression if that's uh, perhaps one of the causes can you talk more about that yeah i noticed that lots of the people that i know who are depressed and anxious their depression and anxiety focuses around their work so I started to look initially at what's the evidence for how people feel about their work. Figures are quite shocking on this. Gallup, the opinion poll company, what they found was 13% uh, of us, 1-3% like our work most of the time. 63% are what they called sleepwalking through their work. So they don't like it, they don't hate it, they just kind of tolerate it. And 24% of people hate and fear their jobs. So that's quite striking. 87% yeah. of people don't like the thing they're doing most of their waking life, right? And I start to think, well, could that have some relationship with our mental and emotional health? So I began to look for evidence about this. And, and I learned that there's an, an extraordinary Australian social scientist called Professor Michael Marmot, who I got to know, who had discovered the core of what causes depression at work. It's not the only thing. 
but it's the biggest cause. If you go to work and you feel you are controlled, so you have low or no autonomy over your work, you are much more likely to become depressed or actually much more likely to drop dead of a heart attack. And, 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 um, and at first, I actually misunderstood what Professor Marmot was saying, right? I thought he was saying, okay, so you've got these 13% of people who get to have jobs where they're, you know, which they enjoy, and they're the kind of elite, and they're going to have nice lives, and the other 87% are just condemned to be kind of miserable, right? Um, and, and I thought about my dad, who was a bus driver, and my mother, who worked in a shelter, my grandmother, whose job was to clean toilets, my brother, who's a delivery guy. And I thought, wait, are we just saying that they're condemned to be depressed? And Professor Marmot said to me, you know, yeah, and you don't understand. It's not the work that makes you depressed. It's being controlled at work. And I discovered there's actually a, a, a cow for that, if you like. There's a solution to that. Um, so I went to Baltimore and interviewed an incredible person called Meredith Keogh. So Meredith um, used to go to bed every Sunday night, just sick with anxiety, right? She did an office job. It wasn't the worst, as she told me, it wasn't the worst office job in the world. She wasn't being bullied or harassed or anything. But she just, it was really monotonous and she couldn't bear the thought, she was quite young, that this was going to be the next 40 years of her life. So with her husband, Josh, she did this quite bold thing. Josh had worked in bike stores in Baltimore since he was a kid. And um, one day in this, you know, which is insecure, controlled work, as you can imagine, one day with his colleagues, Josh just said to himself, what does our boss actually do? They, they liked their boss. He wasn't a particularly bad guy. But they were like, we seem to fix all the bikes and he seems to make all the money. <laughs> so they decided they were going to set up a bike store that worked on a different principle. Their bike store, very successful business now, it's called Baltimore Bicycle Works, is not a corporation with a boss at the top who tells everyone what to do. It's a democratic cooperative. That means they take all the big decisions about the company together by voting. They share out the good tasks and the kind of cruddy tasks. So no one gets stuck with the depressing jobs. Um, and they share the profits, obviously. And one of the things that was so interesting to me spending time at Baltimore Bicycle Works um, was how many of them, completely in line with Professor Marmot's research, said they used to be depressed and anxious in this previous way of working and were not in this different way of working because they dealt with the factor that causes depression at work, which is control, right? They had re it's important to say it's not like they quit their jobs fixing bikes and now they're, you know, Beyonce's backing singers, right? They fix bikes before they fix bikes. They're now. doing the same job physically, right? Exactly. The yeah. difference is now they've got control over their environment. Think about how many people, and this is not saying everyone listening to this should do that because, you know, most people will not be able to do what they did. This is an argument for a structural change in our society. Think about how many people you know who are depressed and anxious now, John, who would feel very differently if they knew that tomorrow they were going into a workplace where they made the decisions alongside their colleagues about what they should be doing where, um, you know, where they, uh, where if there has to be a boss, he's elected by them and accountable to them, where they control their workplace together with the people around them. And of course, in line with market competition, because the Baltimore Bicycle Works still competes with other companies, obviously. And um, that would be a very different way of living, right? That's a very different way of spending most of your waking life. It's one where you can invest your work with meaning. It comes back to what we were saying before, Human beings need to feel our lives are meaningful. And if you're controlled all the time, you, 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 it's very hard to construct meaning out of controlled work. But if, if you have a say over it, then you can construct a lot more meaning. You can begin to think, well, okay, well, how could we do this better? How can we, how can we improve this? How could we do more interesting stuff? You, know, you can see that opens up a very different way of living. And this is the thing we do most of our waking lives. The average person answers their work first work email at 7.48 a.m. and clocks off work at 7.15 p.m., right? If we don't deal with that, it's very hard to see how we're going to deal with this wider crisis. Well, yes. My guest, if you're just joining us, is Johan Hari. His book is called Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions. Now, in all of, of the problems that you lay out in your book and the solutions for those, they are not individual. I mean, the response, a healthy response to depression involves uh, a community. It involves really a, a whole change, uh, in a sense, of our structure, uh, which, which is how we relate to each other, how we relate to uh, the messages uh, that have been given to us by a capitalistic society, um, the, the lies, frankly, uh, often that we're told uh, in order to 
for our, our militaries to keep the stuff and to keep bombing other countries. Whatever it might be that puts us down, it is more than just an individual. And yet the treatment that we have, because we're so isolated, is to go to the individual doctor and get an individual pill. How do we begin to break that down? I mean, how do we, uh, and, and so Big Pharma, as you write about quite a bit in your book, is responsible for the individual pill because that's, that's a good moneymaker. And, and that's part of the whole sickness too, isn't it? Yeah, it's worth reiterating. It's, that doesn't mean that those pills have no value. They have some value for some people, but they're not solving the problem for most of us. And I think there's a really interesting, as you were saying that, John, I was thinking about a really interesting piece of research that really blew my mind. In some ways, it's quite simple, but it, it was quite shocking to me. I went interviewed, it was done by a wonderful woman called Dr. Brett Ford and her colleagues. Um, I went to go and see her in Berkeley. So it looks at a really simple question. If you, John, decided you were going to spend more time more hours a day, deliberately trying to make yourself happier, would you actually become happier? And they did this research in four countries. They did it in the United States, China, Russia, and Japan. And what they found was initially really strange. What they found is in the United States, if you try consciously to make yourself happier, you will not become happier. But in the other countries, if you consciously tried to make yourself happier, you did in fact become happier. And they were like, What's going on? So they looked more closely and what they discovered is in the United States, generally, if you try to make yourself happier, what you do is you do something for yourself, right? You buy something for yourself, you show off on Instagram, you try to get a promotion, you do something for you. In the other places, generally, of course, not in every case, when you try to make yourself happier, you generally did something for someone else. You tried to help your family, your community. These were just implicit scripts in people's minds, right? We think happiness is an individual thing. Most of the world thinks happiness is a collective thing. And it turns out our vision of happiness just doesn't work very well, right? Their vision of happiness does. So I was interested in looking at places that have tried to pioneer approaches, responses to depression, for example, that deal with that. And there was a, one of the heroes of my book, Lost Connections, is someone who, who discovered a really interesting way of responding to this. So the doctor, as you can tell from my weird downtown Abbey accent, I, I'm from Britain, although I spend a lot of time in the US. Um, the, a wonderful doctor in East London called Sam Everington, he was a general practitioner. And he had loads of people coming to him with depression and anxiety. And like me, he's not opposed to chemical antidepressants, but he just thought, this isn't enough, right? And he could see these were really lonely people, they were really cut off from the natural world, they're cut from all sorts of things human beings need. He decided to pioneer a different approach. A woman came to him called Lisa Cunningham, who I got to know quite well. Lisa had been shut away in her home for seven years with crippling depression and anxiety. And one day, Sam said to her, don't worry, I'll carry on giving you the drugs, but I'm also going to prescribe something else. I'm going to prescribe for you to take part in a group. And, and there was an area behind the doctor's surgery, I don't think I can say, uh, involves swearing what people used to call it, it was called Dog Mess Alley, right? It was just a uh, kind of area of scrubland yeah. that dogs would use. And he said to Lisa, what I'd like you to do is turn up twice a week, I'll turn out and support you, and with a group of other depressed and anxious people, let's turn this alley into something beautiful, let's turn it into a garden. The first meeting they had, Lisa was literally physically sick with anxiety. But what happened is a couple of things. Firstly, the people in the group had something to talk about that wasn't how terrible they felt. Um, they could talk about gardening. They started to put their fingers in the soil. They started to learn how you plant things. They were in a city people. They didn't know any of this stuff. There's lots of evidence that interacting with the natural world is an extremely powerful antidepressant. Um, and, and they got to know each other. And they did what human beings do when we get together in groups. They started to help each other. They started to solve each other's problems. For example, one of the guys in the group was sleeping on, on a public bus right at night because he had nowhere to go. Everyone else in the group was outraged. They started pressuring the local authority to get this guy housed. They succeeded. It was the first time they'd done anything for someone else in years. It made them feel great. People started complimenting them on how beautiful this garden was. The way Lisa put it to me was... As the garden began to bloom, we began to bloom. There was a study in Norway that found a very similar program was more than twice as, as successful as chemical antidepressants in reducing depression and anxiety. I think for a kind of obvious reason. It was dealing with the reasons why people felt so terrible in the first place. 
and and everywhere I went from Berlin to Buenos Aires, from Sydney to Sao Paulo to San Francisco, I could see the most successful approaches to reducing depression and anxiety were ones that dealt with the reasons why people are so depressed in the first place. And it's not irrational, right? It's not some, of course, there are biological factors that can make it worse, which are very real and are playing out in a significant number of people. But largely, this is a crisis being driven by the fact that we live in a culture that doesn't meet our deeper psychological needs, right? For most of us, I would say a big majority of us at least being depleted by this lack of our needs being met. And and to do that, and one of the things that was so interesting is looking at all the different places that pursued solutions was realizing these insights are so close to the surface, right? It's not like explaining quantum physics to someone, not that I could do that anyway, but it's not like explaining quantum physics. It's not like explaining some hugely complex science, right? In a way, I feel like what I'm saying is almost stupidly obvious, right? A lot well, of things yeah, like, not- that's what I'm getting at too. I'm thinking this is this is stuff my, my, my mother taught me. I mean, you know, <laughs> when she passed at 91, but I mean, she grew up in an age in which you, you'd dealt with things if you want to be happy go and do something for somebody else i mean she would say that so um th- 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 there's a question i want to talk what what is the link uh what's the um between psychological and social and biological in regards uh to depression what's what's the relationship between those things all three play out in all forms of uh, mental distress right to some degree even think of it as something as extreme as dementia right dementia is obviously heavily driven by the biology uh, yeah, it's a physical deterioration or disruption in the brain. But even with dementia, we know that people who have strong social connections are significant. They develop the symptoms much less quickly. We know there's a psychological aspect because we know people who are optimistic, people who have very good uh, psychological skills, again, develop the symptoms less likely. Now, with something like depression, there is a significant biological component, of course, that plays out. But the social and psychological factors massively interact with it. So all three of them interact. It's not like they're separate things in separate little kind of containers. All three of them interact in complex in complex ways. But we but we know that dealing with these deeper social and psychological causes. So, I mean, we've only touched on a few of the ones that I write about in Lost Connections. So I'll give you very briefly because I know we're running out of time. But, for example, um, a psychological cause childhood trauma makes you radically more likely to become depressed or attempt suicide as an adult i found this very painful to learn the science about because i had experienced some quite extreme um violence from an adult when i was a child but 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 what's very optimistic about this is actually what we there's this incredible science that i learned about from a wonderful man called dr vincent felidi in san diego who's shown if you give people spaces in which they can talk about their childhood trauma in which they will see they will not be judged for it in fact people will say this should never have happened to you we're sorry this happened to you that in itself and on its own leads to a really significant fall in depression and anxiety so there's this big range of causes we need to have a much more complex conversation about depression up to now we've had this ridiculously simplistic story where you're just told oh it's just lack of a chemical in your brain and maybe there's a little bit of therapy that will help you as well when actually and i don't i'm not particularly critical of doctors you know we've only given doctors one lever one lever to pull right or maybe two some of them can refer you to a therapist so in a sense, most doctors haven't got the option to do what, for example, that gardening program or many of the other options that I talk about in the book, some of which are big social changes, right? A doctor can't say to you, I prescribe a democratic workplace to you, right? That's something that has to be done at a much bigger social level right. and a, a social transformation. But I do think that the the evidence is, is clear that if we continue to be a society where, you know, I'll give you an example. There's a study that asked Americans how many close friends do you have who you can call on in a crisis? And when they started doing it years ago, the most common answer was five. Today, the most common answer is none, right? A society of profoundly lonely, isolated people told that life is about money and status, you know, uh, who, who think that life is about screaming at each other through screens, is going to be a society with a depression and anxiety crisis for a really good reason. And it's not because just because something went wrong inside their skulls, right? And if we tell people a story that it's just biological, what that does is it cuts us off from understanding the real causes of these problems in our own individual lives 
and in the wider society. And that is a disaster. My guest is Johan Hari, author of Lost Connections, uncovering the real causes of depression and the unexpected solutions. More to come. Stay with us. I'm John Schuck. This is Progressive Spirit. Progressive Spirit is produced every week. It couldn't happen without the financial support of my congregation, Southminster Presbyterian Church in Beaverton, Oregon. Southminster's website is www.southmin.org. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon for the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, as well as podcast. Show KBOO some love, won't you? KBOO.FM and click Donate. Yohan Hari is my guest. He's the author of Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions. This is Progressive Spirit. I'm John Schuck. You know, uh, I think you wrote in your book that uh, you describe yourself as an atheist, but uh, right there you sound like a, a, a preacher who has something good to say. <laughs> I mean, uh, about building community and finding values, you know. It's so interesting you say that because there's something I found quite challenging. Um, so I looked at this research about, um, so a lot of people will know, until the mid-1960s, there was a lot of research done giving LSD to people with things like depression and alcoholism. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you about, that was a question I wanted to ask you about, what, what role are psychedelics in this? Yeah. Well, the, this research, the research in the 60s was, you know, it wasn't done to the standards that we would want science to be done today, but it was, you know, they were pretty suggestive results. And then the Nixon administration just shuts it all down, right? Yeah. And in the last kind of eight years, this research has been very slowly reopened. So I went and interviewed the teams of scientists who've been doing this in Los Angeles, in Baltimore, in New York, in Oslo, in Norway, in Sao Paulo, in Brazil, and in London. And um, it's totally fascinating. And there's loads of things I could say about it. But um, I'll just tell you one that I think really relates to your, your, your area of concern, John. So there's a study that was done in Baltimore at Johns Hopkins University, um, where they take chronic long-term smokers who've tried to stop smoking loads of ways. Uh, I was feel personal about this because my mother is a chronic uh, smoker. There's a picture of my mother and me when I'm six months old. She's breastfeeding me, smoking and resting the ashtray on my stomach. Oh. Um, and, uh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> when I showed her this photo, she said, you were a difficult baby. I needed that <laughs> cigarette. Uh, but the, uh, So they take people like my mother and they give them three doses of psilocybin, which is the active component in magic mushrooms. Uh-huh. And um, what they found was, absolutely extraordinary 80 percent of them stopped smoking eight zero percent right and had still stopped with still no longer smokers more than a year afterwards right to give you a sense of comparison the next most successful smoking treatment is nicotine patches and that has a 17 one seven percent success rate it's extraordinary right and they're trying to figure out what's going on here many interesting things are happening there but one is there's a subset of those findings that to me i think was really fascinating um so when you give people psilocybin, most people will have what in the broadest terms would be considered a spiritual experience. You have a sense that you are deeply connected to the world, to people around you, to the natural world. You have a sense of your ego shrinking and your sense that the world is, you know, uh, an amazing place, right? You can measure that. Some mm-hmm. people have a very intense spiritual experience and some people have no spiritual experience at all. And what they found is the positive effects like reduction in depression, addiction, and so on, were extremely closely correlated with how intense your spiritual experience was. So if you had a super intense spiritual experience, you had lots of positive effects. If you had no spiritual experience, you had no positive effects. And I think that tells you something about the value of spirituality defined in the broadest possible sense. So I'm an atheist, I don't think that means I don't have spiritual values. You know, I have, for me, they're moments of profound human connection. They come in, you know, um, actually things like political protests. So I, you know, I feel an uh-huh, incredible sure. spirituality, you know, moments when people come together to demand something better, for example, is one thing that comes to mind, but there are obviously many. Um, one of the things that we get from spirituality is a release from the sense of the ego, right? It's interesting speaking to the team in London who've been doing this research. What they show is one of the things that happens when you take psilocybin is your capacity to think egotistically 
just massively reduces, right? You can't think about yourself. You, you can only think about things around you. Now, obviously, you also see why we need an ego, because <laughs> you wouldn't want to walk around the whole time in that state. But you could also see what your ego blocks out. And that's the, so the need for spirituality and spiritual experiences is very deep in human beings, right? It gives people many things. It gives them a sense of meaning. It gives them a sense of a much bigger story than themselves. And um, I mean, you you know better than I do what what these things we get. These are essential human needs. They are not like trivial add-ons, um, and they and they and one of the reasons why we have a depression and anxiety crisis. So I talk about in the book. You know, everyone knows junk food has taken over our diets and made us physically sick, right? I don't say so any judgment. I basically lived on KFC for ten years, mm-hmm. um, but but. What's interesting to me is a similar thing has happened with our values. A kind of junk values have taken over our minds and made us mentally sick. There's a wonderful man you should interview for your show. Actually, you'd really like him. He's called Professor Tim Kasser. And he did this incredible research showing that uh, the more, in fact, for 25 years he's been producing this research. He's shown the more you think life is about money and status, the more likely you are to become depressed and anxious for a whole range of reasons that he's proven you know, I think that tells you something, right? Our whole culture is geared towards getting us to think in these materialistic ways. President Trump is not an aberration from that culture. He's the culmination of that culture, right? Oh, yeah. And... He's, he's the uh, the embodiment. He, he's, <laughs> he's come back to roost. He's us come back to roost, I think. And he's the, I think he's the... Uh, I don't say this to be critical of Trump supporters, who I think are suffering a lot and need a lot of love and support. And I really don't like sneering at Trump voters. I think it's really actually making the problem worse. Yes. Because of Trump himself. And I didn't want to say this. I know you're not saying that either, John. Um, In terms of Trump himself. Yeah, I mean, he's I think it's he's the worst trends in the culture. Take I wouldn't want to say he is the United States because he's not. Most Americans are much better people than him and most americans have a whole range of countervailing trends and, and so on but 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 yeah the 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 culmination of these trends that are really a, a sickness you can see I, you know, and i really think it's played out you know, i had this moment that for me was this defining moment at the election um it was a couple of months before the election and i was doing some um writing about some amazing people who for a different book about people trying to get out the vote who were trying to get out the vote in Cleveland, um, in West Cleveland, which is a really depressed part of West Cleveland, one of those streets where like a third of the houses have been abandoned, a third have been demolished, and a third still have people living in them. And we knocked on one door, and there was a woman who I would have guessed from looking at her was 60. I discovered from the conversation she was the same age as me. I was 37 at the time. And she was very intelligent. She was quite articulate, extremely angry. Um, and she made this verbal slip that's really stayed with me she was talking about what the area used to be like for her parents and grandparents and she meant to say when i was young what she actually said is when i was alive and it really knocked me back because i thought that's how she feels right and she's not wrong to feel that way and i can well understand why people in that position say you know what i'm going to vote for the guy who says burn the whole thing down right and and for us to say that that woman is just racist um, I didn't see any evidence she was racist or that woman is stupid. She was certainly not stupid. I think is really missing the point. And it will mean that, we, you know, our side keeps losing if we carry on talking about people like that, right? If we don't understand in, in a compassionate and empathetic way why people are so distressed they've done this. Now, don't get me wrong. As I think is pretty obvious, I think I begged that woman not to make the choice that she made, right? I think it was a terrible, a catastrophic error of judgment. But the... And I think her life will now be worse. But I, I can understand why. And it's not stupidity and it's not racism. I'm not saying there's no racism in sport for Trump. Of course there is. But, the the you know, we've got to have more complex, just like we've got to have more complex conversations about depression. If we live in a society that doesn't meet people's psychological needs, that's going to manifest in all sorts of disturbing ways. One of them will be a depression crisis. One of them will be the opioid crisis. One of them will be, you know, r- rising support for uh, political candidates who, you know, offer more extreme solutions in inverted commas. And one of them will be an obesity crisis because people will just drug themselves with food to get through the day. Right. There'll be a whole range of things going on. Now, I'm not suggesting that's the only cause of any of the things we've talked about. It's not. 
But if we don't understand this wider perspective that I try to write about in Lost Connections and that many other people have have warned us about, I just think we, the crisis is only going to get worse. And it doesn't have to, right? There are solutions to these problems. There are ways we can reconnect and have better lives that are not magic and they're not, you know, they're not so extreme and they're not so hard to get. And they fit with the needs of everyone, whether they're the most diehard Trump voter or the most diehard Bernie voter or the most diehard Hillary voter. You know, the, the, the you know, um, which one of the reasons why actually I was really moved that Hillary Clinton um, has been so nice about my book. And, and, and interestingly, it's been a really fascinating experience because Tucker Carlson, the leading host on Fox News, has been really nice about my book. And Naomi Klein, who's the kind of leading left-wing thinker of our time, has been really nice about my book. And to me, that's been so fascinating to see pe- I, people from radically different parts of the political spectrum. It's hard to imagine people more different than Tucker Carlson, Hillary Clinton, and Naomi Klein, right? <laughs> you know, I'll bet if Donald Trump read your book, he'd like it too. <laughs> I, I, you know, a lot of this, uh, I, I hear with you about the budget of Trump, but there, there are a lot of positive reasons that people voted for Trump that are related to your book. Um, and that is that um, uh, we've been doing bad things and there needs to be some um, accountability. And so people voted for Trump to get us uh, in, 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 in many respects to give a criticism of, well, frankly, a pharmaceutical industry that, you know, is pushing pills is basically writing uh the dsm-5 these kinds of things this medical industrial complex these kinds of things are far were long before trump and and so some of these issues um uh, you know trump just kind of scared everything out of the bushes but anyway i want to tell you you can respond to that politically but i also want to say another thing and i want to ask you about this is that we think that depression is the problem and that this is in the united states western uk western medicine that needs to be fixed and the and and the magical fix right now and and it ha- as you mentioned it has some benefits is uh these SSRIs but the question is is it that the depressed people really sick or are they uh, talking about uh the symptoms of of larger problems are they not in a sense the the, the depression that we experience really a prophecy a truth serum about yeah, the- about how how about about our dysfunctional value system I think that's a really important question. Uh, as an Indian philosopher called Krishnamurti, he said, it's no sign of good health to be well-adjusted to a sick society. Yes. And yes. I thought about that a lot when I was writing the book. There's a really disturbing illustration of that. In the 1970s, this thing was discovered about depression that was so inconvenient that it was literally got rid of. So... The American Psychiatric Association, the APA, decided for the first time they were going to drop guidelines for how you should diagnose depression if you're a doctor. So they drop a list of 10 symptoms, which are pretty obvious things like, you know, crying all the time, feeling worthless. You could guess what they would be. And they sent them out to doctors all over the US and they said, if you're going to, from now on, if you're going to diagnose depression, if any patient has more than five of these 10 symptoms for more than two weeks, you should diagnose them as depressed. So doctors start using this, but within a few months, they started to come back and say, look, we've got a bit of a problem here. If we use these guidelines, we have to diagnose every grieving person as mentally ill, because this is, these are basically the symptoms of grief, right? And the APA got together and they're like, well, that's not what we intended, obviously. So they invented something they called that was called the grief loophole, where they basically said, use these this checklist to diagnose depression unless the person has lost someone they love in the past year, in which case it doesn't count and you should, you know, uh, don't diagnose them as mentally ill, right? Um, but that, so psychiatrists started using that, but that begged a much bigger question, right? Well, psychiatrists started saying, well, hang on a minute. We're meant to tell people that depression is just a brain disease, that you just identify on a checklist, except there's one circumstance in life and only one where this is a completely understandable response and it's you're not mad, right? Well, hang on a minute. Why is that the only situation where it's legitimate to respond this way? Why not if you've lost your job? Why not if you've lost your home? Why not if you're stuck in a job you hate for the next 40 years, right? Why is this the only situation? But that, as Dr. Joanne Cassiatore, who's a wonderful woman who, who, who's the leading expert on this debate about the grief exception, said to me, that would require a whole system overhaul, right? That would require us to think about 
context when we diagnosed people. We, our whole system is not geared to do that, right? So the APA just got rid of the grief exception. It doesn't exist anymore. It's gone. So now if your baby dies at, you know, 9 a.m., if your doctor comes and interviews you and says, well, have you been feeling down for the last few weeks, which a lot of pregnant people are, uh, they can diagnose you half an hour later as mentally ill for crying all the time, feeling distressed, feeling worthless, you know. Um, and in fact, uh, 9% of grieving parents are in fact diagnosed and drugged in the first 48 hours now. Y you can see how that misunderstands, as Dr. Cassiatore put it to me, grief is not a sickness, right? We grieve because we've loved someone. It is, a it is a human response to distress, right? And in a similar way, I think it's a coincidence that depression and, and, and grief have the same symptoms. I think part of what depression is, is grief for your own life, not going the way it should. Depression is grief for your own needs not being met. And, and that requires us to think about it very differently. And obviously, when someone we love dies, all we can do is hold the survivors and, and honor them and remember the person who died. But when, if it's grief for your own life, well, then there's a lot of things we can do to help you get your needs, get your deeper needs met. Yeah. Uh, and I think that helps us to understand it, just how deeply we misunderstand human suffering in this culture, or how deeply this over-medicalized model, which is not to say there's no value in some of the things they do. Of course, there is. There are great psychiatrists who do a great job and they are all well-meaning people pretty much but the but, but we but we have to have this deeper conversation it, we can't carry on talking in this simplistic almost childlike way about what, what what our distress is yeah exactly right johan hari is my guest lost connections is his book uncovering the real causes of depression and the unexpected solutions so here's my last question um People are listening to the show and they're thinking, well, I've been taking these SSRIs for, I don't know, five years. Or in your case, you took them for quite some time, 13 years or something like that. So now um, they're hearing your show and they're and, and not that <laughs> you, I mean, you know, you didn't write a self-help book, but they're doing this. What what would you might hope not not to give anybody advice because you're not. But what would you might hope people who are feeling depressed, going through the SSRI thing, doing all of that? What, what, what would you uh hope people might get from reading your book well i think there's several things the first thing is you're not crazy if you're depressed if you're anxious if you're in pain don't let anyone tell you that that's just some irrational spasm due to some chemical imbalance in your brain it's not true your pain makes sense it has meaning um and and together collectively we can find that meaning and we can deal with those deeper underlying causes. That doesn't mean that you have to deal with them on your own. Indeed, I would say very few people can deal with them on their own. We know this about, I don't know, car accidents, right? Um, we don't say the job of solving car accidents lies only with people who've already just been mangled in a car wreck, right? We have the whole society responds to the risk of car accidents. So we have uh, driving tests. We have airbags we have seat belts we arrest people who have duis um we have speed limits right we have a whole range of things we didn't do those things if we just said to drivers drive carefully and just said to pedestrians cross the street carefully we would have much higher deaths on the roads than we do now so part of what i argue in my book lost connections is in a way the question you've just asked so i don't criticize you for making it in any way because this is what a lot of people in a sense, puts the onus on the wrong people, right? Yeah. Actually, I, I don't think the job of solving depression should lie just with people who are already depressed and anxious, right? I think it should lie with the whole, precisely because the causes lie in the whole society. The solutions have to come from the whole society. Now, what I would say is um, the act of coming together and fighting for something better in itself has a really powerful antidepressant effect right the struggle is the solution but i also talk in lost connections about seven things that we can fight for that will have a really that the evidence suggests will have a really powerful antidepressant effect but i think in a sense it's the it's not that it's the wrong question to ask it's an important question to ask but to me it's not the most important question to ask the uh, and certainly framing it as about antidepressants is not you know look my advice to people who take chemical antidepressants is if for you, the 1.8 points people gain on the Hamilton scale or a bit more for some people, because that's an average, 
outweigh the side effects, then you should carry on taking them. If they don't, then I would recommend in consultation with your doctor over a very long period of time, considering reducing and being monitored very carefully, do not stop overnight. That's a disaster because 20% of people have really severe physical withdrawal, uh, which is a nightmarish experience. You really don't want to go through that. Uh, so you, if you're going to cut back, do so very slowly in consultation with your with your doctor. But the but in a way, we we need a bigger solution than than you know. And there are bigger solutions waiting for us. Most people know this is a deeper crisis than we are you know, than, than we've been told by our doctors. Most people can sense that intuitively. Johan Hari, his book is Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions. Uh, Johan, thank you uh, for all your work on this, uh, for sharing your personal story and, uh, and for spending time with me today. I'm really grateful for how deeply you engage with the book. I should also just say, can my publishers tell me off if I don't? Anyone who wants any more information about the book, they can find out what Hillary Clinton, Russell Brand, Ariana Huffington, BJ Novak, loads of people, uh, Tucker Carlson said about it. You can go to www.thelostconnections.com. They can hear audio of interviews with all the people we talked about, uh, all the experts. They can take a quiz to see how much they know about the real causes of depression and anxiety, and they can find out where to get the book and the audiobook as well. Great. Thanks so much. Progressive Spirit is heard every week. On Progressive Spirit, you hear interviews with cutting-edge scholars, authors, and activists who have something to say about social justice, human flourishing, and things that matter. Progressive Spirit is formatted for radio and is distributed every week through the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the public radio exchange. My media empire has now invaded New Hampshire, Progressive Spirit will live free or die at 3A Oldies 91.9 in Epsom, New Hampshire. Thanks also to the following stations for carrying Progressive Spirit every week. WETS, Johnson City, Tennessee. WEHC, Emory, Virginia. WPVM, Asheville, North Carolina. Kutztown University Radio, Kutztown, Pennsylvania. KCEI, Taos, New Mexico. KACR, Alameda, California. WDRT, Viroqua, Wisconsin. KSOW, Cottage Grove, Oregon. KYAQ, Newport, Oregon. KBOG, Bandon, Oregon. And KZ88, Kabul, Missouri. You can download Progressive Spirit for free on your favorite podcast app. The website is progressivespirit.net. Follow on Facebook and Twitter. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. I'm John Shack. Be well. <laughs>